It's one of the most overlooked chapters of World War II. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you're going to hear about the forgotten front of World War II, the true story of the first air commandos and their top-secret missions in the China-Burma-India theater. Imagine flying into combat in a canvas-covered plywood glider. You're 200 miles deep into Japanese territory in the dead of night. The dozens of gliders with you are transporting over 500 troops, hundreds of tons of cargo, and mules and horses. These were the kinds of missions assigned to the all-volunteer men of the 1st Air Commandos. There were 523 hand-picked men chosen to help protect and regain lost territory in the beleaguered China-Burma-India theater. You'll meet the mastermind of Operation Thursday, two trailblazing U.S. Army lieutenant colonels, John R. Allison and Philip G. Cochran. They linked up with an extraordinary British general, Ord C. Wingate. Together, they accomplished what had never been done before, penetrating so deep behind enemy lines, it wouldn't be done again until the war on terror in Afghanistan. You'll also learn about the legendary Flying Tigers and how they became the only source of hope in this often ignored theater of operations. You'll hear from courageous veterans of this little-known place on Earth and how they proved they were indeed ready any place, any time, anywhere. If you're hiring, you need to know where to post your job to find the best candidates. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter's been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it right. ZipRecruiter.com strive. Good evening, I'm Oliver North and welcome to War Stories. I'm here at the U.S. Army's Airborne and Special Operations Museum in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And this is a CG-4A glider. 13,999 of these were built in World War II. While America's eyes were focused on the European and Pacific theaters, daring aviators and soldiers were using these to make history in the forgotten China-Burma-India theater. The 523 men were all volunteers, known as the First Air Commandos, and they had a daunting task. But a spring of 42, the Japanese war machine had conquered Burma, cut off China, and were threatening India. The Allies turned to Army Air Corps General Hap Arnold and two brave men, Lieutenant Colonels Philip Cochran and John Ellis. They lived by the credo, any place, any time, anywhere. Nineteen thirty-one, a trying time for our country. America was in the midst of the Great Depression, and while we were mesmerized by the trial of Al Capone and the completion of the Empire State Building, the Empire of Japan was girding for war. In those ten years before they attacked Pearl Harbor, 
Japan was taking brutal and bloody steps toward its dream of a greater Asia. Artie Van Wagner, whose father Fred served in the Burma campaign, has written a definitive history on the first air commandos. Tell me about why Burma was so strategically important to the Japanese. What the Japanese wanted to do is they wanted to, first of all, seal off the island of Japan. Uh, there were raw materials in Burma that they needed, um, particularly petroleum and natural gas. Was there ever a plan by the Japanese to take India? Burma also would, uh, would be a stepping stone into India. The Japanese believed that there was enough civil unrest under um, Mahatma Gandhi that they could walk into India, pick up followers, and hopefully take the crown jewel of the British Empire. What the idea was is there was a greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere that they wanted to establish. They would draw off the resources from that sphere, which included China, Indochina, Burma, and the Dutch East Indies, and then they would establish themselves as a world power. And the backbone of that power came with forced labor. Texan Kyle Thompson would become a POW slave laborer on the Burma-Thailand Railway. Horrible conditions, atrocious treatment. Japanese had absolutely no regard of our lives. or They didn't care whether we lived or died. Their only interest was to get whatever they could out of us. But to get to Burma, Japan had to go through China. The Japanese struck in September 1931. With the warlord's support and Emperor Hirohito as a figurehead, the Imperial Army invaded the Chinese province of Manchuria. Of the 14 million Manchurian people, an estimated 200,000 were slaughtered over the next seven years, and more than a million were forced to work as slaves. Then, in early 1933, the Japanese unleashed horrible new weapons of war. Under the direction of Dr. Shiro Ishii, Japan set up a biological weapons research center near the town of Pingfan. Professor Donald Goldstein is a scholar of Japanese history. They set up these camps in which they used prisoners of war as experimentals. They set up unit number 731. We take an arm and put it on for a leg. Take horse blood and put it in human beings. POWs were also exposed to pathogens such as cholera, anthrax, and bubonic plague. The 731 unit was as bad as arsonists maybe even worse in terms of the experiments that the Japanese carried out. 300,000 Chinese, Russian, and Korean prisoners would die agonizing deaths over the next 12 years. We'd learn later that a number of Americans also met gruesome fates in Unit 731. And one Japanese soldier who provided Dr. Shiro Ishii with human guinea pigs was General Hideki Tojo, nicknamed the Razor. He'd become the feared Army Chief of Staff and later rise to Prime Minister of Japan. Tojo is just as mean as Stalin. He's just as mean as Hitler. Tojo is the epitome of the Bushido Code because he is a samurai. He even writes a, a code book of which is the way of the soldier. What Tojo told the truth was, rather than live and bear the shame of imprisonment by the enemy, the soldier must die and avoid leaving a dishonorable name. Manchuria was merely a pit stop in Japan's aggressive empire building. Over the next five years, 
the dragon roared, and General Tojo was there. The Far Eastern War drags on and flares anew. Shanghai fell in July 1937. Six months later, the rape of Nanking. And no one stopped him, and it was the norm. How many did you get today? I got nine. I'm the hero. I killed 10. I got 11. I got 12. And so they were killing and raping at will. An estimated 300,000 Chinese were butchered. It was a new benchmark in the brutality of war. Half the world away, Washington watched with alarm. And while Japan rampaged, Hitler was on the rise in Europe. But FDR's hands were tied, for he'd signed the Neutrality Act in May of 1937. It was called a stopgap to keep American armaments out of the hands of so-called belligerent powers. But a year later, Chinese nationalist forces under the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek had yielded 550,000 square miles and 170 million Chinese to Japanese control. FDR knew he needed a way to quietly help Chiang Kai-shek, and he found one through Chiang's beautiful wife, Mei Ling. Madam Chiang Kai-shek is obviously a very powerful influence on, on what would actually take place in China. She had the support of key figures in Washington that kept her husband and her in power in southwest China. We backed Chiang Kai-shek primarily because if we could keep Chiang in the war, then 25 divisions of Japanese would be held on the mainland of China. If we were unable to provide resistance, then many of those divisions would have been turned loose on the Pacific. For help with his China problem, Roosevelt turned to this man, 44-year-old cantankerous Army Air Corps Major Claire Chennault. Nicknamed Old Leatherface, Chennault taught aggressive combat maneuvers called pursuit aviation to pilots. He often demonstrated them in spectacular air shows around the country. He knew how to employ fighter aircraft, probably better than anyone uh, in the Air Corps in those days. When he met Chenault, John Allison was a 22-year-old Army Air Corps lieutenant from Florida. The son of a lumberjack, he was flying pursuit aircraft at Mitchell Field in Long Island, New York. Why was Claire Chenault controversial? Well, he was so controversial that he was forced to retire. He had to get a job. Somehow or another, he had come to the attention of, I think, Madame Chiang Kai-shek. Chenault called her princess. And at FDR's request, he happily went to China to meet with Madame Chiang Kai-shek to inspect the beleaguered Chinese Air Force. This is really an interesting part of the history of World War II. Chenault uh, realized that the Chinese Air Force had just debilitated. The Japanese were attacking their cities. They couldn't defend the cities. So his plan was to get aircraft and pilots out of the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps and uh, form the American Volunteer Group. Roosevelt actually signed the piece of paper that said that he would support that, but it had to be outside of the military. Roosevelt overruled General Arnold and Admiral King and allowed Chenault to recruit 100 pilots from the three services. Plus the mechanics to maintain those That's airplanes, correct. which the commander-in-chief can do. In 1940, John Allison got the call to demonstrate the Curtis P-40 for Chinese officials and Claire Chenault at Bowling Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. I 
put the throttle up to 980 horsepower. So this airplane just soared skyward. I just actually did a Immelman right off of the runway. I just came down at low altitude, below 100 feet, and put the tip of the wing right over the group and made a number of circles at max power. We got into the shelter of the hangar. Chinese were excited, and they said to General Chennault, we need 100 of those airplanes. Chennault stuck his chin out, and he says, no. He came over and tapped me on the chest, and he looked at him and said, you need 100 of those. In total, 112 military pilots resigned with the understanding from their president that they could return to their branch of service when their job in China was done. On April 15, 1941, the AVG, the American Volunteer Group, was activated. Did Chenault ask you to join them then? Uh, they knew I couldn't. Because you were a regular officer? Yeah. Little did I know that about two, two and a half years later, I'd be flying for him. Allison was sent to England to teach the Royal Air Force about the P-40, while Chenault got to work training his pilots. Painting the noses of their aircraft with shark's teeth, they earned the nickname Flying Tigers. Their job? Protect the vital flow of supplies supporting Chiang Kai-shek's forces coming in through the treacherous 500-mile-long Burma Road. December 7, 1941 changed everything. But while our forces in the Pacific were caught blindsided, the Flying Tigers were ready for war. They provided really the only air power that uh, the Burma had. The battles against the Japanese you never heard about. Special operations in the China-Burma-India theater. That's next on War Stories. Burma was known for its unforgiving mountains, dense, steamy jungles, and paralyzing monsoons. The monsoons come in in mid-May, drop about 100, 200 inches of water, rain on the central part of Burma until about the end of October. What that meant was that Burma turned into a quagmire. Only about 10% of their roads were all-weather roads. The rest of them were tracks that would turn into goo. And so you couldn't really move and you couldn't operate in that situation. On December 23, 1941, the Japanese launched a blistering air attack on the key port of Rangoon. Burma's defenses included nearly 40,000 of Chiang Kai-shek's 5th and 6th armies and two British infantry battalions. Against them, Tojo deployed 100,000 troops from the 15th Japanese Imperial Army. FDR assigned Lieutenant General Joseph Stilwell, known as Vinegar Joe, as commander of the American forces in China, including Claire Chenault's Flying Tigers. It includes some of the great characters of aviation. Absolutely. Do you remember the great Marine, Pappy Boyington? No, well. <laughs> he, was, he was something else. Was he as wild then as he turned out to be later on? He was a liability. He lost airplanes. He got lost, landed wheels up. and He was a great guy, but he just did some outrageous things. And Chenault sent him back to the United States. And I don't think he ever forgave Chenault. The leader of the Black Sheep would go on to win the Medal of Honor in the Solomon Islands. While Claire Chenault's helping Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek is not only fighting the Japanese, he's also fighting Mao Zedong. That's correct. That was difficult to resolve because we needed to decide who we were going to back. The Japanese didn't care. General Tojo planned to cut off supplies and starve China into submission. But the Flying Tigers had other ideas. 
In the months of January and February of 1942, they were reported to have shot down 200 enemy airplanes, lost only six flying tigers. Was the experience gained by those pilots important to how we fought the war? Yes. The P-40 was a better airplane than the Japanese Zero, but in some respects, a Japanese airplane would outperform us. It would outclimb us. It would outturn us. Chanel says, don't get in a dogfight. And uh, I'm a little hard-headed. I tried it a couple of times, and every time it was a disaster. Though John Ellison's original duties had prevented him from joining Chenault's Flying Tigers, he now found himself ordered there by General Henry Hap Arnold. I got this wire just to one line, report to China. And they issue you a P-40 in India and say, fly it over the hump. Yeah. Over mountains, often at heights of over 20,000 feet with the menace of Japanese planes ever present. The pilots who flew the hump lived like dogs and flew like fiends. But it wasn't enough. In barely three months, Tojo and his juggernaut seized total control of Burma. Lieutenant General Stilwell summed it up this way. We got a hell of a beating. We got run out of Burma, and it's humiliating as hell. I think we ought to find out what caused it, go back and retake the place. It took British General Ord Wingate and tactics he called irregular warfare to take on the Japanese in Burma. Nearly 3,000 British commandos known as Chindits behind enemy lines. That's next on War Stories. When Burma collapsed in the spring of 42, every bean and bullet needed to fight the Japanese had to be flown in over the most inhospitable terrain in the world. With their swashbuckling pilots, the C-46 commandos and B-25 Mitchells were crammed with up to four tons of supplies. They made a sky bridge 525 miles long over the roof of the world. Pilots would hone in on swing music broadcast from the tiny airbase at Kunming, China. But many didn't make it. The so-called aluminum trail was littered with the remains of a thousand men and 600 planes. Terrible weather, very high altitude, no rescue beacons, no constant monitoring. Airplanes that would take off and fly over the hump would be out of communication for hours. You had updrafts and downdrafts and uh, very treacherous. In fact, uh, I believe on the side of the, of the airport at Kunming, it said, you made it again. While British Prime Minister Winston Churchill watched the Japanese chip away at his empire, a daring military mind was determined to stop them dead in their tracks. There's a remarkable British general. Some describe him as the the Lawrence of Arabia of the China-Burma-India theater. His name is Ord Wingate. Ord Wingate was, uh, was a maverick. He was a genius in special operations. Before he came to, uh, to Burma, he had been involved in Palestine. He had been involved in Ethiopia. In both cases, he showed that his remarkable ability to use irregular forces. Solomon Schnitzer and Charles Turner were then 22-year-old glider pilots from Texas. They'd never forget Ord Wingate. Now remember, you could not look the man in the eyes. He had such piercing eyes that you couldn't take his gaze, you had to turn away. He rode a white horse on occasion. It's like a parade with nothing on but an alarm clock. 
And that's a little unusual <laughs> for a, a general. Some of the things that he did were for shock value. He would hold his staff meeting while he was sitting there in the nude. He ate great quantities of onions, believing that they had some sort of medicinal value, so you can imagine what he smelled like. He also uh, brushed himself with a toothbrush to clean himself. He disdained the headquarters, called them headquarters apes. He would go in the most rumpled uniform that he could come up with just to, uh, to kind of thumb his nose at people. Despite his peculiarities, Wingate was a shrewd and gallant soldier. Because of Burma's rugged terrain, he knew a traditional frontal attack would be impossible. So in February 43, he launched a secret mission to put troops behind Japanese lines. Operation Longcloth was the name given to it. Wingate believed in his theories, his long-range penetration theories called LRP. He wanted to send uh, 2,800 people into the heartland of Burma. But they require air support. The way that he was resupplied was he put an RAF liaison officer in his columns. They would have smoke that they would set off so that they could identify the clearing that they wanted to drop in. He actually got so far into Burma that airdrop couldn't keep up with his advancements. He hit the Japanese in their soft underbelly, attacking their supply lines and their de supply depots. For four months, Wingate and his so-called chindits cut Japanese lines of communications and destroyed railroads. But the lack of consistent air support cost 800 British troops their lives. If you can't medevac your casualties, your morale drops like a stone. The wounded couldn't keep up with these highly mobile columns. It was very difficult, but Wingate made the determination that if they can't move with us, rather than sacrifice the entire column, what we'll do is we'll leave this guy with bullets, maybe some grenades, give him a Bible, some water, and they would leave him in the jungle. Wingate and his remaining 2,000 commandos finally struggled back into India in June of 43. But despite heavy losses, the mission was deemed a success. And with some Americans, including one who inspired a comic strip, Wingate would do it again. Philip Cochran and John Allison launched Top Secret Project 9. That's next on War Stories. The whole CBI was a mess. We had actually a disgraceful command structure. We had Chiang Kai-shek and Stilwell, they hated each other. Under uh, Stilwell you had Chenault, Chenault and Stilwell didn't see eye to eye at all. Then they put Admiral Mountbatten on top of the pile. Stilwell had no respect for Mountbatten, he referred to him as that limey. And Mountbatten had no respect for Stilwell. All of a sudden Wingate shows up and he fights. On a newsreel for the first time, those almost legendary figures, the Chindits. Masters in guerrilla warfare, they've taught the Japanese to fear the swift striking columns of elusive fighting men. During that summer of 43, Winston Churchill knew he had a much needed star in General Ord Wingate. Churchill liked his idea, so he took him to the Quadrant Conference in Quebec. Churchill and Wingate met with President Roosevelt and outlined a plan to enter Burma again behind enemy lines in the upcoming dry season. But Wingate needed air support. He couldn't abandon wounded troops as he had the first time. You just cannot leave your friends when they're wounded. Roosevelt was going to support Wingate because he needed to open the door 
to the Burma Road again. He turned it over to Hap Arnold. Hap Arnold began to look for somebody who could put this together. I don't know how they found me because I was out at Malibu. <laughs> and before I knew it, they put me on an airplane the next morning. I reported to General Arnold's office and Phil was sitting in the outer office. He said, John, what are you doing here? I said, Phil, I don't know. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I don't know. Phil was the legendary and highly decorated aviator Philip Cochran. Phil and I were good friends. We'd gone through the flying school together. We were in the same fighter squadron before the war. We had a house together at Langley Field. Confident, outspoken. His language was colorful, perhaps too salty for some people's ears. But he came in with a sterling record. He developed some of his own tactics. He was devoted to his men, and he called them sports. He was exactly like that. If you were a good guy, you were a sport. If you weren't, you were a weenie. I remember that. Solomon Schnitzer was a glider pilot, and Walter Radovich flew a Mitchell B-25 bomber. He knew how to take care of the women. He was a real lover. And now, Terry and the Pirates. Cochran was also the inspiration for the Flip Corkin character in Milton Kniff's popular comic strip and radio show, Terry and the Pirates. Well, the comic strip allowed us to tell our folks back home indirectly what was happening. And of course, the comic strip was always behind six months or so, but they could get the idea of where we were and what we were doing. What orders does Arnold give the two of you? He's obviously handpicked the two of you guys. He said, we've been tasked. We've got to evacuate his wounded. He says, this man walks in. It takes him six weeks to get in position to where he can really hurt the Japanese. We can move him in in just a few hours by air, and that's what I want you to do, and I'm going to give you everything you need to do it. And he says, one of you boys are going to have to do it. Which one will it be? And I immediately said, not me, sir. And Phil didn't want to go either. So we looked at each other and... One of us, I kept saying, said, well, can we both go? He said, well, Allison, you're the commander. I said, no, sir. I said, Phil ranks me for about two or three weeks. He said, well, then you'll be co-commanders. The other thing that he said as they were ready to leave the door, he said, and to hell with the paperwork, go out and fight. Their command didn't last very long. Well, after about a month, it was so confusing. I said, look, Phil, let's just go back and be regular soldiers. You're the commander. I'm your deputy. Let's get this job done. Allison and Cochran set up shop in room 281 at the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington, D.C. Originally, Arnold called it uh, Project 9. It was also CA-281. They didn't have any official name for themselves, so they brought people in under CA Cochran Allison, 281, report here. Allison immediately began recruiting for Project 9, and Cochran flew to England to meet with Wingate. In his own words, he said, I instantly disliked him. But after he listened to him a little bit, he began to realize that what Wingate was describing was a combination of air and ground that hadn't been done before. You're given an extraordinary mandate. You got the president's authority, you got Hap Arnold behind you, you can have anything you want, anybody you want. Where'd you go to recruit people? We didn't really know anybody, but uh, friends of ours did. So we'd go to them and say, we want highly motivated uh, volunteers for a mission and we can't tell you what we're gonna do. Everybody wanted to go with us. No personnel limitations. You get whoever you wanted. We were picked in Goldsboro and told we were going to join Project Number 9. And uh, we had no idea what that was, and uh, no one told us what it was. One of the men they wanted was 21-year-old Sergeant Gene Peaster from Norco, California. 
He'd just finished training on P-38 fighters. We felt like we could take that plane apart and put it back together again. It was, we knew it inside and out. Peaster would become crew chief for a 22-year-old pilot from Michigan, Olin O.B. Carter. And the strange thing was I had just been married about a week or so before that, so to volunteer to leave your bride is a little unusual, I guess. She knew my first love was flying. Obi kissed his wife Norma goodbye and headed for India as part of the 1st Air Commandos. It took Allison and Cochran less than a month to assemble a combat unit with 348 aircraft and 523 men. I met him only the first time I got off the airplane in Karachi. I'll never forget it as long as I live. They were there to meet the airplane. And we came off and reached out and shook hands with Allison and then Cochran. I had a musette bag over my shoulder. And in the top of that bag was two bottles of scotch. And one of them fell out on the pavement right there, and I was mortified. And Cochran looked down at it, and he said, well, aren't you going to get down and lick it up? He said, you know what that costs over here? I mean, this is extraordinary. I mean, you have two lieutenant colonels yeah. <laughs> who've got this, their own air force. Yeah. Come up with their own tactics. I'd been in India and China, so I knew what it was like. So we decided we'd take gliders. We didn't want to depend on the 10th Air Force. We wanted our own fighters. So we got 30 P-51s. We knew uh, the Allison engine, which was in that P-38, was the same engine in our P-51A. And uh, we just knew what to do. They were liquid-cooled engines, and uh, the props were Hamilton Electric. We got, I think, 15 B-25s, and we got 25 or 30 C-47s. We had 100 ambulance planes. We had 100 cargo gliders, and we carried the first helicopters ever in the combat. First time you ever saw a helicopter? <laughs> Didn't believe it. <laughs> and basically whoop a Japanese army that's three times the size of anything the Allies have got anywhere else. Well, we had an influence, yes. What kind of men were these to go to war, land behind enemy lines in a canvas-covered plywood airplane without a motor? That's next on War Stories. By December of 43, the first air commandos had set up two air bases deep in the jungles of India. The fighters and light ambulance planes were at Hyla Kandy, 10 miles away. The gliders and C-47 tow planes were positioned at Lalagat. Gene Peaster was crew chief for O.B. Carter and their P-51 nicknamed Little Kitten. It was your wife's nickname, so we put Little Kitten on the airplane. When it rained, got a lot of bird baths on the strip so that on takeoff, frequently you get water and mud splashed up into the air school. And I really felt sorry for Gene on this because he didn't have any ready water available to wash those things out. We had buckets that we would dip up some water and clean off those airplanes. At Lalagat, Solomon Schnitzer and Charles Turner had to build their own airplanes. We had to assemble all of our gliders, and there were 150 of them to be assembled in India. Like we had two wings and one crate and the fuselage and the tail section and another one. The ugliest looking thing I ever saw in my life, as far as an airplane was concerned. But uh, it flew. That was part of the deal. You had to test the glider you have to build. If you did something wrong, it, it could come back to bite you. The Americans and Brits were racing against the dreaded monsoon season. Wingate was also training some 3,000 U.S. troops known as Merle's Marauders. They were gearing up for their own march into Burma. Wingate had, had, had predicted that the Japanese were going to make a, a real attempt to take India. Easy to do, 
because India was a colony and there was a tremendous emotion for independence. So Wingate says, we can beat them. British historians don't give him the credit that he's due, but the Japanese do. General Tojo was now Prime Minister of Japan and he'd handpicked General Rinya Mutaguchi to make the final drive into India. Operation Longcloth caused General Mutaguchi to believe that he was vulnerable in the interior of Burma. We kind of thought like Custer, what are we doing here? You know, and when we found that we were working with the British, it was even more interesting. Wingate knew his Chindit forces were now protected by American air power. The Japanese interior forces were inferior. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to leapfrog over the front lines and get about 200 miles to the rear. Then he could start chewing away at the logistics lines. Little Kitten and the other aircraft started softening up the enemy defenses. They were flying missions in preparation for this invasion. They would do damage to the Japanese supply lines, the rail yards and the uh, railroad bridges, uh, they take out uh, those with their bombs and machine guns. Cochran taught us, if you can deliver that bomb low enough and pull out right on the treetops, you avoid getting your own shrapnel. But you increase your accuracy to almost 100%. Meanwhile, the gliders went through trial runs. A C-47 would literally snatch a fully loaded glider right off the ground. Each 3,500-pound Waco glider was crammed with an equal weight in men, Jeeps, mules, and ammunition. And for the operation, Allison and Cochran approved the dangerous double toe. Oh boy, for one moment you're sitting still, the next moment you snatch you in the air and you're gone. Whoopee, I made it. You were both behind the tow plane, but one was above the tow plane and the other one was below the tow plane. That worked real well. We thought they were crazy. To illustrate, almost every glider landing in wartime is a crash landing, really because it's an unprepared surface. The gliders were to land on two jungle clearings 200 miles deep into enemy-held territory. And then the men would build two airstrips called Broadway and Piccadilly so that Allied forces could land on the doorstep of the Japanese Imperial Army. But a month before it began, disaster struck Operation Thursday. In this particular case, the glider pilot on the long toe collided with the glider pilot on the short toe. The man on the short toe was able to recover his glider, but the other one crashed, killing uh, three Americans and four British. That particular incident caused a lot of people to question, is this operation safe? The commander of the British forces sent a note to the, uh, to the first air commandos and said, be assured, we will go with your boys any place, anytime, anywhere. That cemented the relationship between the Chindits and the 1st Air Commando Group. On March 5, 1944, everything was ready. But when this reconnaissance photo over the clearing showed teak logs all over Piccadilly, Cochran and Allison were worried. It would have been a disaster if we tried to land there. If you gliders would have crashed and we would have just had casualties everywhere. At the last minute, Piccadilly was abandoned. Now, all remaining 63 gliders were going to have to land on Broadway. It was a dawning mission, and Cochran gave the speech of his life to his men. Now, tonight, your whole reason for being, your whole existence is going to be jammed up into a couple minutes, and it's going to take your character to bring it through. Now, nothing you've ever done before in your life means a thing. Tonight, you're going to find out you've got a soul. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget it. 
The first air commandos and their British allies bring the Japanese war machine to its knees. That's ahead on War Stories. Knowing what I know now back then, I would not have done it. It's just plain silly behind enemy lines at nighttime over Japanese-held territory. Solomon Schnitzer was a youngster flying 7,500 pounds of airplane and payload without an engine. The reality doesn't hit you until you make that first mission. Then you grow up in a hurry. Charles Turner was also flying a loaded glider for Operation Thursday. The danger of flying a glider at night would be undershooting or overshooting. You don't have power to control your descent. Dawn on Broadway revealed the clearing was littered with smashed gliders. Only 37 of 63 deployed made it. 24 good men were dead and another 33 badly injured. Japanese really didn't believe that you'd actually done it. The Japanese probably said, what in the hell are they doing? But anyway, we got, we, we got the people in. Among those brought in was Raymond Bluthart, a 23-year-old farm boy from Kansas. He was part of the 900th Airborne Engineer Company. At dawn, he and seven other engineers set to work building a 5,000-foot-long airstrip and removing the plywood carcasses of the gliders. That was about the worst, because that took a lot of time for our equipment to get that stuff out of there. We just had that one day. We were there to get the runway open. Something we had to do, and we did it. Phil said, when can you take your first airplanes? I said, just as soon as it gets dark. I said, but just send them in one at a time, slowly at first. And that evening, we had the runway, we had lights with the generator. In less than 24 hours. We got in about uh, 500 men that night. Lord, I don't know how many mules. And uh, the next morning, they were on their way through the jungle to fight the Japanese. While Wingate led his chindits through the jungle, pilots O.B. Carter in Little Kitten and Walter Radovich in a B-25 bomber started prowling Burma. And two days after Broadway opened, they hit the jackpot at the enemy's jungle airbase in Shuibo. 60 Japanese aircraft were caught on the ground. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. We cleaned up on that base. We almost ran into each other. It was so exciting. When we send our planes out on a mission, crew chiefs don't have anything to do. So we go to the radio shack and listen to the pilot-to-pilot conversations. And on this particular day at Shwebu, they were having a field day. We went back on the second mission and did some more damage. And Cochran wanted to send us out again after dark to try and finish up the job. We never found the target that night. But on the way back from that third mission, the whole country was covered with a smoke haze due to burning of crops. And uh, we couldn't find our, our home base. And the, our ground crews, realizing that, uh, took barrels of gasoline and lighted them on fire. And we were able to get home that way. i never forget that mission. Wingate was busy shuttling between his chindits and the bases on that fateful March 24th. And he'd taken off from Enfall, heading for Halakandi, where we were based. I went down to the airfield to greet him. One of our C-47 pilots called in on the radio, and he said, I just saw a flash on the side of a mountain. It looked like a, an airplane. So I called Phil, who was asleep. He was sick. And I said, Phil, I hate to do this, but you better get down here. I said, I think we've lost Wingate. And... Uh, it's a mystery what we don't have the slightest idea of what happened. I always felt that uh, 
if I had been flying it, it, maybe it wouldn't have happened. But if I had been flying it, I wouldn't be talking to Ollie North now. An unconventional warrior. Absolutely, and he and he was one of the best. And when Wingate died, the Chindit idea died with him. Stay tuned for more war stories. That's an order. Ward Wingate, John Allison, and Phil Cochran had stopped General Renya Mutaguchi and the dragon dead in its tracks. India was saved, and the Japanese were in full retreat from Burma by the spring of 45. What Mutaguchi says in the end is, is that my supplies didn't get to me. My Air Force was tied up uh, dealing with the 1st Air Commandos, and he said that my reinforcements, two divisions, were tied up fighting the Chindits. It was the first major land battle that the Japanese had lost, and it reached back as far as uh, the Prime Minister, Tojo, was replaced shortly after this. And the Razor failed to live up to his own warrior code. Other Japanese generals commit suicide, uh, and he doesn't do this. Tojo was holed up in his country home when the Americans arrived in Japan. About to be arrested as a war criminal, he shot himself with a pistol displayed there instead of committing harakiri. He failed to kill himself and is treated by an American Army doctor and receives blood transfusions from an American Army sergeant. They try to save Tojo to stand trial as Japan's war criminal number one. He did survive and was found guilty and hanged in December 48. But his cohort, Dr. Shiro Ishii, who led the atrocious human experiments committed at Unit 731, was never arrested. A coffer cuts the deal, and the deal is, hey, give me the information, don't destroy all these records, don't give it to the Russians, and we'll let you go. But Yeshua lives to 1958, for goodness sakes. So this is a sad case, you know, in American history, and it's, it's been whispered. Maybe it happened. It did happen. It turns out that until we go to Afghanistan, that is the deepest penetration behind enemy lines that's ever been conducted. Well, we've got a great country. It's one of the things I'm certain it's surely worth fighting for. The men of the 1st Air Commandos wrote the book on air assaults and special operations in the China-Burma-India theater. They were pioneers in special operations and unorthodox warfare. And they were indeed ready, any place, any time anywhere. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.